0: litigation macroscopic millimeter modernizing mustache multitude monumental microcosm mitchell metallurgy and the list goes on these are words starting with the letter m welcome to abstract colon the future of science i'm jeremy allman your host for today and forever after we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research one episode at a time so let's go Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, is nuclear energy a safe energy alternative? And can we entrust our future in these fission reactors? How can we use lasers to learn about a material's composition? And what are materials even made of at the smallest scale? How big and how small are the satellites in orbit above our heads? What are they even doing up there? Seriously. Also, what is space junk and how does it pose a problem to other satellites in orbit around the Earth? We're going to be answering these questions and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. Thank you for being here. We're going to get going right now. Three, two... Mitchell Cornell recently received a Master's of Applied Science in Engineering Physics from McMaster University, where his research focused on improving inspection techniques for the nuclear industry. Using laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, or LIBS, he was able to detect parts per million levels of hydrogen and deuterium in a zirconium alloy. This research is of particular interest as it would optimize the duration and performance of required inspection of the pressure tubes in nuclear reactors. These inspections ensure that the level of hydrides in the tubes does not exceed a critical threshold, a point where the pressure tubes become brittle and prone to fracture. Yikes. During his master's research, Mitchell was supported by an NSERC CGSM scholarship and has since shifted focus for his doctoral work. Mitchell's currently a PhD student in the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab at McGill University, where he's planning to investigate the uses of CubeSats for on-orbit servicing. He's supported in this work by the Les Vadas Engineering Fellowship. Outside of academia, Mitchell spends his time playing guitar, a passion of his for the last 15 years, golfing and mountain biking or snowboarding, depending on the season. Right now, we have Mitchell with us today. I think this is the snowboarding version of Mitchell, given that it is February. So without further ado, let's welcome Mitch to the podcast. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for being here. So pretty pretty cool to have somebody just starting a PhD. We are going to be focusing on predominantly your master's work, given that this is what you've become a full expert in. And we will definitely be touching a little bit on your current PhD research at the end, for sure, because it's new, it's exciting, and who knows? We might have you back on the show in a few years when you're coming towards the end, and we can loop back and see what kind of progress has been made.
1: Yeah, that would be awesome. I'd be happy to come back.
0: Sweet. So we're here now. We've got some time to break things down. So this is the first first interview that I'm having with somebody who's worked with the nuclear industry. I'm very excited to hear a bit about this. Dangerous stuff, some people think. From what I know as, as just a, a member of the general public, there's a lot more worry about nuclear energy than there should be is this is this true like is is there kind of this assumption that nuclear is very dangerous when in fact it isn't kind of like how people think that they're more likely to die while traveling by plane than by car
1: even though that's not true either yeah it's nuclear power is extremely well regulated especially here in canada we have the canadian nuclear safety commissioner cnsc and they're the people that oversee all of the nuclear reactors that we have in canada And my work looking at inspections for nuclear reactors was just part of this effort that the CNSC has implemented where they're making sure that the groups running these nuclear reactors are doing so in a safe manner. So I think that obviously we have to be safe when we're operating nuclear reactors. I'm not saying that everybody should have one in their backyard, but the degree to which they are maintained and people are making sure that they're operated safe. I think honestly that they're one of the best options that we have right now for having a sustainable future, especially in terms of energy production. Mm -hmm.
0: We're not really going to chat about fusion today, but just just to ask (laughs) you, what do you think the viability is of fusion now that you've worked with nuclear reactors?
1: What do they say? It's always 20 years away and it's been 20 years away for the last 20 or 50 (laughs) years or whatever it's been. It's really difficult. I took a class where we touched briefly on using nuclear fusion as a fuel source, and I'm definitely not enough of an expert to say what a definitive time frame for that happening would be. Sure, but there are some very very smart people working on those problems, so I think it's a possibility. I okay. wouldn't rule it out entirely.
0: Okay, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but in nuclear reactors, we're we're using uh, fission, right? Yes. So this is the splitting. Of atoms, as opposed to fusion, which is the the fusion of atoms. Exactly, so it's kind of like reverse processes, both of which produce tremendous amounts of energy. Yep. But fusion isn't at the same level, I guess.
1: In yeah. Terms the of research. Yeah. The hope with fusion is that you can get a ton of energy out for what you put in. A lot more, actually, than you would get out out of a single fission reaction. Uh-huh. But getting the conditions required for fusion to happen is extremely difficult. You pretty much need a star. Like our sun is a giant fusion reactor. Right. It's kind of hard to build that on Earth. So that's one of the big difficulties they're having.
0: It's a good thing that we don't have to check on the pressure tubes in the sun to make sure that they don't uh, break or crack. <laughs> There's no pressure tubes there. The yeah, a little chilling. bit,
1: a little bit more difficult to check them out there.
0: For sure. So we're going to leave the sun let it just do its thing. keep yeah. Keep warming us. Although exactly. if you look outside now, it doesn't look like it's doing its job. So you used a technique called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. Very, very fancy wording.
1: You want to tell us a bit about what that even entails? Yeah, it's a really, really cool method for determining basically the material composition of whatever you're looking at. My favorite example that I like to tell people about is they put one of these instruments on the Mars Curiosity rover to figure out what Martian rocks were made out of. Ah, sick. So basically you get a high-powered laser you focus it to a small spot on the surface of whatever material you want to investigate, that really high-powered interaction that the laser has with the surface of the material will cause it to rip apart at the surface and basically release kind of a cloud of atoms and ions, and that cloud will become superheated and produce a plasma. That plasma, one of its primary mechanisms for cooling down is giving off radiation or light, and if you've taken a quantum mechanics class, they always talk about those elementary transitions of atoms. Those transitions actually give off specific wavelengths of light. And all of those wavelengths are pretty unique to atoms. So you can look at what specific wavelengths are coming off of your plasma, and then you can tell what atoms you have present inside of your plasma. And then if you get more into the math, you can start using the ratios of how much light is coming off at each wavelength. And that can tell you your relative contributions to that plasma in terms of what elements are present in that plasma.
0: Cool. Okay. So what kind of wavelengths can we expect to see when we shoot a laser, for example, at Martian rock? I would assume we're not going up to gamma rays (laughs) or, you know, that kind of high energy. Are we looking at something really low, like radio waves, or is it even visible light?
1: Yeah, typically we're looking in the ultraviolet to near-infrared ranges.
0: Okay. Which captures visible as well. Yes. So does this mean that if I use libs to shoot a laser at Martian rock, I'll actually be able to see some kind of visual phenomenon in front of me?
1: Yeah, you actually see a little bright flash of light show up wherever your laser's hitting. Okay,
0: which would effectively be the same thing as just me shooting like a dollar store laser pointer at the wall. That's where like the visible part of this radiation comes out?
1: Oh, okay. So... The lasers that we're using to shoot at these targets are typically either infrared lasers or UV lasers. So you won't actually be able to see the laser beam with your naked Mm -hmm. eye. Cool. But what you're seeing is that plasma of light, that little kind of ball of atoms exploding is the light that you're seeing with your eyes. (laughs) Nice. Atoms exploding. That's
0: that's stuff that I'd like to see more (laughs) often. Yeah. Where could I get my hands on a Libs? On a
1: libs. Um, oh, you sorry. can build one yourself. <laughs>
0: no, not on a libs. Where can I get my hands on a laser that can be used in this kind of technique? Like, are, are, Is this kind of thing that I could get my hands on as just a, a random member of the public? Or do you need to kind of specially
1: order these for experiments? Typically, they're special order kind of items. You can buy some of them just as a regular everyday kind of person. They're very expensive, so that's... Okay. Probably the main reason why we don't see everybody running around with a handheld libs unit.
0: <laughs> sure. We'll put a link to the Amazon page for the extremely high powered lasers if I can find it. <laughs> okay, sweet, sweet, sweet. So... You're using, or at least during your master's degree, you were using this method, the LIBS spectroscopy method, which, by the way, we had a previous episode where we spoke about spectroscopy in in the context of an astrophysics discussion. This was, I think, episode 31. So I could definitely see the relationship between the spectroscopy where we're actually looking at at stars and we Mm -hmm. can see the chemical makeup, essentially, of those stars just by virtue of seeing what what the wavelengths of light are telling us. So the same thing is happening here when we shoot a laser at the surface is what you're telling
1: me. Exactly. Okay. One of the big differences that we run into versus the astrophysics kind of people is that their source is glowing for a very long time. So they have a very long observation window that they can use. Mm -hmm. Our plasmas that we generate in LIBS are extremely short lived. So we're looking at these plasmas for, in my work, it ended up being around five microseconds that I was looking at an individual
0: event. You said five microseconds? Yeah, so five times 10 to the minus six. Seconds. Okay, so, so one two hundred thousandth. Yeah. <laughs> one two hundred thousandth of a second. But you told me that I'd, I'd be able to actually see this, this little burst of, of plasma light. Can my eyes actually perceive something that happens for one two hundred thousandth of
1: a second? So the plasma itself, I believe, lives for around a millisecond. We did some measurements and that's kind of what we were getting was just under a millisecond or around a millisecond. Yeah. But the useful part of that plasma for us tended to exist only for that short five microseconds. Okay, fair enough. So that's great.
0: So you're using this laser to detect the presence of certain molecules. And so you're looking for hydrides specifically.
1: Yeah. So within the pressure tubes of nuclear reactors, they're made up of a zirconium alloy. And as you said in the introduction, Those hydrides are kind of what hit that critical point and then can lead to fracturing if you get enough concentration of them. So we're not actually looking for zirconium hydride itself. We're looking for the hydrogen and deuterium signals, basically by ripping those zirconium and hydrogen or zirconium and deuterium bonds.
0: Hydrides are what exactly?
1: They are compounds of zirconium and either
0: hydrogen or deuterium. Where deuterium is just an isotope of hydrogen. Exactly.
1: it's okay. can also be known as like heavy hydrogen, Sure.
0: so you just add
1: on your additional neutron. Got it.
0: Okay. Why are we expecting to find deuterium in this zirconium alloy?
1: So in CANDU reactors, which are the power generating nuclear reactors we have in Canada, they use heavy water or D2O as their coolant as opposed to H2O. Okay. So that's why we expect to see deuterium showing up in those signals.
0: I love a nice, simple explanation to a very simple question. That's great. Excellent. Okay. So we're we're using heavy water here. Why exactly? Why are we using heavy water, not regular water? Presumably there's more regular water. It's easier. It's cheaper.
1: Yeah, it's way cheaper. You turn on your (laughs) tap and you have a bunch of regular water or as the nuclear engineering folks call it, light water. Light water. They use it Primarily because of its neutron absorption properties. So I am not extremely well-versed in the operation of nuclear reactors. I will say that as a caveat. Cool. But it has to do with the amount of neutrons that heavy water absorbs versus the amount of neutrons that light water absorbs. So in order to keep their reactor at the critical kind of operating level, they need to use heavy water as their coolant.
0: Okay. We'll just take that at face value for now. They got it because of the the reactivity, in a sense, of the deuterium. Yeah. Okay. And just so I can get a sense of what zirconium alloy is, where would I find zirconium alloy in my day-to-day life? Is it in my refrigerator? Is
1: it in my shoes? Is it in my brain? It's a pretty specialty product. As far as I'm aware, the nuclear industry is pretty much the biggest industrial use of zirconium. Mm-hmm. Depending on the reactor that you're looking at, It might have zirconium-2, zirconium-4, or what we use in Canada, zirconium-2.5% niobium. And these are all just different alloys that have slightly different neutron absorption properties, slightly different mechanical properties. And in the design of the candor reactors, they decided that the one with 2.5% niobium was going to be the best for them.
0: So this is a metal, essentially?
1: Yep, just a metal. If you look at it, it looks no different than steel or anything. It's just they picked it because it has those nice neutron properties. Right.
0: Okay, so now that we've spoken about the the fact that we're using deuterium and we're using zirconium, are, are both of these things involved in the actual reactions that we're creating here, in the, in the actual fission reactions that we're producing here inside these reactors?
1: Not directly. Okay. So the pressure tubes themselves are made up of this zirconium 2.5% niobium. Inside of those pressure tubes, we have the nuclear fuel bundles. So, those are the things that are producing our fission reactions, giving off the heat that we use to produce power. In order to keep those at an acceptable temperature and to carry that heat away to do our power generation, we have heavy water coolant flowing over those pressure, or over those fuel bundles, sorry. And as that heavy water flows over those fuel bundles and interacts with the pressure tubes that it's flowing inside of, you get some seepage of the deuterium atoms starting to leave the solution of the water and creep themselves into the alloy of the pressure tubes.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So this is where you come in. Because if there's too much seepage, if I might use such a word, disgusting as it is, (laughs) this is what can lead to these pressure tubes becoming brittle and prone to fracture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You get that deuterium breaking up, it goes, it forms zirconium hydride or zirconium deuteride. I tended to just call it zirconium hydride because regardless of the compound, it will behave a similar way inside of the metal. And once you get too much of that, it'll want to fracture. This sounds like a major
0: issue. I feel like I need to kind of amp up the, the emotional intensity of this right now. We There is already this, this fear about nuclear reactors and nuclear reactions happening, people where these things are going to blow up and malfunction. And you're coming on the show and you're telling me that as a master's student, you're already being recruited to solve this problem of brittle pressure tubes. Is this one of the biggest problems that we have with nuclear reactors? Is this a minor problem? Like how many people every day are just spending their entire life trying to make sure these things don't malfunction?
1: A lot. This is one of the big parts of the nuclear reactors. Like These are your components that are holding the fuel bundles. These are what is supporting those giant fission bundles, if I can call them that. And there was an instance, I don't want to get the year wrong, but I believe it was in the 1970s where one of the nuclear reactors in Pickering actually had one of its pressure tubes fail. And... The zirconium hydride content was later discovered to be one of the issues that led to that fracture in that pipe growing up to the length that it did. Obviously, they caught the issue before it got out of hand. These reactors are designed with so many safety systems that'll kick in autonomously. So once it started to notice that there was anomalies, the entire reactor shut down, everything was safe. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But since then, there have been regulations put in place that Regular inspections must be done on these nuclear reactors to make sure that the level of hydrogen and deuterium in these pressure tubes is not exceeding any of the mandated thresholds that the CNSC has come up with. So they'll put these reactors into shutdown and do inspections to figure out how much hydrogen, how much deuterium has migrated into these pipes.
0: And so I'm curious to know specifically what your role was and also what kind of results you got in your specific master's research.
1: For sure. So the method that they've been using to do these inspections for a long time has been mass spectroscopy. And mass spectroscopy is amazing. It will tell you exactly what you have, exactly how much of everything you have. But the issue is that it's really expensive and it takes a really long time to get results. So What I was trying to do was develop a proof of concept that would say we can use LIBs or laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy to detect the presence of hydrogen and deuterium in zirconium 2.5% niobium with some degree of confidence. So I was really trying to prove that first step that we can use a new inspection technique that's faster, produces the same level of results, If it were to be implemented, exposes workers to less dose and can all be done on site. You don't have to ship anything off-site for analysis.
0: I want you to think of a number between one and a hundred. When you've got that number, I want you to say, okay, I'm ready. All right. Now, I've been taking this mind-reading course, and I'm doing quite well. I'm 100% in the mind-reading course. Of course, I knew that my teacher was going to give me that grade. And I believe the number you're thinking of is 37. If I correctly guessed your number, tag me on Instagram, at abstractcast, and congratulations. So let's actually talk about the numbers here. You said mass spectroscopy took quite long. What's the
1: uh, time savings here for mass spectroscopy versus LIBS? So with mass spectroscopy, we would be looking on the time scale for these inspections of months. It's taking quite a while to get these samples, send them off site and do the full analysis. With LIBS, we would be looking at running a full inspection campaign on the order of days to weeks. Wow, that's savings, especially
0: if you're talking about cracks in pressure tubes in a nuclear reactor. Time is of the
1: essence. Also, time is really money in the nuclear industry. Every day that your reactor is shut down is a lot of money that you're not making because you're not distributing power out to whatever community you're serving.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Wow. That's amazing. I, I can't say that during the short period of time where I was conducting my own graduate research that I felt I was making such a big difference in the world. I was working on some very theoretical psycholinguistics, but this is like this is this is big stuff. This is real, real tangible effects on improving safety and optimizing a very, very important aspect of the functionality of these massive reactors. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, I would have meetings with my supervisor from time to time and he would just remind me every now and then basically what you just said that, you know, the scale of this is huge. If this works, this is huge. It's going to make a huge impact. So it was really driven home to, you know, do the best possible work. I could be extremely vigilant in the results that I was getting and making sure that what I was doing was right.
0: Yeah. Jeez. That's, that's high pressure. Were there ever any points throughout your master's where you just like felt extremely stressed and overwhelmed with the the magnitude of the importance
1: of your work? Absolutely. When It had been, I don't even know how many months at this point, at least three or four months where I wasn't getting good results. And then thinking about those thoughts in the back of my head, telling me, you know, this, it should work. If it works, it's going to be huge. It'll save all this time. It'll save all this money. It'll have people getting less radiation dose. Definitely at those times, I felt the stress start to build. And, you know, I'm lucky where that stress kind of just pushed me to work harder thankfully. Otherwise, you know, the amount of pressure that doing, I think, any kind of grad school can be a bit much at times. Well, will go for you for making it through.
0: Is that the reason why you ended up pivoting fields? You just couldn't take the heat?
1: (laughs) No, that was more of a big kind of sitting down and thinking about what I want from life. When I looked at where I saw myself in, you know, 10 or 15 years, I realized that I don't think I would be extremely happy if I were to end up in the nuclear field, which is definitely where I was heading. And I thought back about all of the things that I want to make a big impact on, like what interests me the most? What do I spend my time Googling when I get home? And it always ended up being stuff related to space. So I decided that if I was going to pursue a doctoral degree, I had to pivot. I had to go and try and pursue something that I was truly passionate about.
0: How has that transition been so far? I know a handful of people who have done a master's degree and either fast track or continue in the same lab. We actually had someone on the show, his name was Eitan Bolka, who did exactly that as part of the Mechatronics Lab, which you are a part of. So I'm definitely curious to hear a bit about what that transition was like for you.
1: Yeah, the good part about the transition was it was engineering to engineering. So it's not a mm-hmm. huge night and day switch, but the thing that kind of, I guess, was is still giving me the most difficulties is switching from engineering physics and this nuclear kind of thinking towards mechanical engineering and realizing that I don't always have the exact skill set that I should have had coming into a doctoral degree in this. So it's been a lot of trial by fire, learning as fast as I can, as much as I can. So it's been a lot of fun because it forces me to learn this material that I'm really interested in but it definitely was kind of a lot of pressure and a lot of stress to learn this material well.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. I felt similarly when I started my master's degree. I felt unprepared, even though I wasn't necessarily making a switch, right, from doing one for focusing my graduate research in one field to another. But even just coming out of my undergraduate degree, I I, I definitely feel you on that level. But awesome that you're in it. How are you enjoying it now that you're embarking? So this is the beginning. You're you're how, how far, maybe like three to six months into your degree now?
1: Yeah, I guess I just passed the five-month mark, so I started in September of 2020, and I love it. Honestly, the project that I've been talking with my supervisor about, every time we have a meeting and discuss it, I get more excited about the potentials of it and directions that we're going to take it, so I couldn't be happier.
0: So I know that nothing is necessarily set in stone at this point, but I I still do want to touch on this current research. I definitely have some deep interests in space and astrophysics, And so I know that you're kind of definitely brushing shoulders with those fields. So in the introduction, of course, we spoke about the fact that you're going to be using CubeSats. Before I even talk about what you're using CubeSats for, let's let's discuss what CubeSats actually are. It sounds like an abbreviation for something.
1: I'm actually not sure if it's an abbreviation for anything. As far as I know, it's just they called it a CubeSat because it's made up of these primary units that are... 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So they're these little cubes, and they put them together in different ways to make a satellite. So I think that's where the name came from, but I might be completely wrong.
0: Well, so so sat is short for satellite.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that part is short for something.
0: <laughs> okay, so so satellites made out of little cubes. Yes. Why 10 centimeters,
1: if I may. So this standard was developed by a couple of professors in California. I believe it was a professor from the California Polytechnic Institute and in Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the history on why exactly they came up with this size, but they basically came up with this standard that allowed space to be more accessible to people. So they've made a way that you can design satellites that are small, but are fully functional as complete spacecraft. We have Earth observation CubeSats now, we have communications CubeSats, A lot of science missions being run on CubeSat. So it's a very capable platform, but you don't have to launch something that's the size of your coffee table or the size of your car or these big satellites that we typically associate when we think of space.
0: So you're telling me that the entire CubeSat is just one cube?
1: At its smallest scale, yeah.
0: Oh, I thought the CubeSats were made out of little cubes, but you're saying one individual satellite can just be... 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters.
1: I think the smallest fully functional one that was released was a half U. So they call one 10 centimeter cube a U or a unit. Uh And the smallest one was 0.5 U that has been launched. So they had a fully functional satellite that was 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 5 centimeters.
0: (laughs) That's small. I actually just took the ruler from the corner of my desk and measured that my... My index finger is about 10 centimeters. Index or middle finger. I, I figure middle was maybe a little too profane for a family friendly podcast. But that's pretty small. Like, I don't know, maybe you could think of just the height of your palm. That's that's tiny, that there's a satellite that's doing something useful from space that is so small. How do we even track these objects? Are we tracking them with other satellites?
1: <laughs> so NORAD has a database where they can track any object in space that is I believe bigger than 10 centimeters so cubesats are right at kind of the limit of that it might be smaller than that I should throw a caveat in there again but also there are some heavy regulations on cubesats that say if you're launching them into space they have to be able to decay from their orbits within a certain time span as to not add to the space junk problem And some of them will have their own onboard tracking capabilities. Like if they're interested in doing earth observation, as they transmit down their pictures, you can get an idea of where they are. Or if they're making some kind of science measurement, like measuring the radiation content of low earth orbit, as they take their measurements, they'll need some kind of geolocation so that you can put that into reference for the orbital frame and know where that measurement came from.
0: This is insane. I I just... I've always imagined that if, if something or somebody was just kind of floating in orbit around Earth, that it would just, it would be like trying to find them would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And so imagining that there's this, this, this tiny cube the size of my hand that we're keeping track of, and presumably there are, I don't know, how many, hundreds, thousands, millions of these?
1: There have been about 1,400 CubeSat missions launched. Wow. Somewhere in that neighborhood.
0: Right. Some of which have already had their orbits decay, most likely. Yes. Okay. So we're not, like you said, contributing to the space junk problem, which yeah. we could, I'm sure there could be a whole other episode talking about space junk. What do you know about space junk?
1: Yeah. So as satellites go through their lifetime, they will effectively die for one reason or another. They might run out of fuel and no longer be able to do their orbit keeping maneuvers, They might have a part fail because it's been hit by radiation too much or some other kind of failure. And then it's kind of just abandoned in the orbit that it's in. And based on the laws of orbital mechanics, it will decay and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere eventually. But for some of these objects, it might be thousands or tens of thousands of years until this happens, depending on the orbit that it was in. So if it's in a really popular orbit, if it's in an nice orbit that we want to send more satellites to, having this piece of debris flying around is really not a good scenario to be in. And even for little tiny pieces of debris, they might pose a huge problem because when you're orbiting Earth, you're traveling so fast relative to everything else that's around that a little tiny pebble coming at you is like having a cannonball shot at you almost. So we really want to be sure that whatever's in space As we're launching new things, they'll either re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, burn up, and not be a problem for us. Or what my new work is kind of looking at is, can we repair those satellites that have gone defunct and are no longer operational?
0: Repair which satellites? The CubeSats or bigger ones? Bigger ones. So you want to repair bigger satellites using CubeSats?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Whoa, it's like like a satellite birthday party. Everyone's celebrating together. All the baby satellites are bowling, and the mommy satellites are just watching to make sure they don't hit each other with the bowling balls. I don't know why that came to mind <laughs> so there are there are a lot of science fiction movies that take place in space, and I feel like they portray a specific you know cleanness and like futurism and like organization to space. but the fact that we just have like random cubes just flying around the earth potentially bashing into other objects brings a really nice juicy chaos to it
1: oh yeah <laughs> one of uh my favorite pieces of space junk if you can have a favorite piece of space junk you can there's a european space agency satellite called envysat and at the time this was this super revolutionary satellite it got a lot of great science for us but it's about the size of a bus and <laughs> we kind of suddenly lost control of this satellite and now there's just a bus essentially flying through Earth's orbit that we're not able to control. It's kind of in an out-of-control tumbling scenario. So a lot (laughs) of this work in this field has been focused on, can we get Envysat and can we move it out of the way? Like, can we return it to Earth's atmosphere so it will burn up and we can get rid of it? And it's in a really prime orbit. So, I
0: can't believe that there's a giant rogue bus just hurtling through space at how many thousands of kilometers an hour. Yeah, a lot. Oh my goodness. That's insane. I think we I think Hollywood's got to got to make more movies about space junk cuz I could see a lot of a lot of drama and action ensuing from this.
1: I think the movie Gravity, I I've never seen the full thing, but I think their issues start because they were hit by a piece of space junk. Oh, really? Okay. The
0: plot yeah. thickens.
1: So somebody has thought about it. Okay,
0: good. As long as there's somebody, uh, listeners, if you are aware of any other films, including Gravity or others, that have touched on Space Junk, please let me know. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. I want to know what you know because you now know what we know. Okay, that's amazing. So are CubeSats a new kind of technology? Is this something that's come up in the last five to ten years? Or is this like – are are we at like the – CubeSats V20.
1: We're definitely up there on the iterations. I believe that they came out around the 90s is when the first ones started to be launched. And then as time has gone on, they've become more and more popular. Everybody wants to launch a satellite to space. It's one of the coolest things to do, at least in my opinion. And now all of a sudden the barrier has been reduced from millions or billions of dollars to build these satellites to, you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's still not something that the everyday person can get together, but a university, yeah, they might have the funds to be able to do that.
0: I can see somewhat of a common thread developing, where in your master's research, you were reducing the amount of time it would take to detect potential issues in the tubes of nuclear reactors tenfold. And now we're talking about reducing using some kind of technology where the price has been reduced by, like you're saying, at least tenfold. So Who knows, maybe if you do a postdoc, you'll be doing something else that gets better by tenfold. And I can't wait to see what that might be.
1: Yeah, I've never put that together. So thanks for pointing that out for me. Apparently, I'm just driven by lowering costs of things.
0: You're just an optimizer through and through. And I appreciate that about you. I do have a question which was actually uh, sent to me by a good friend. His name is Noah Sadaka. Thank you, Noah Sadaka, for this question. Noah Sadaka, friend and listener, asks... Do you have to take into account the Earth's magnetic field when trying to get the spacecraft to a specific attitude? And not altitude, but attitude. Maybe you could tell us what attitude is.
1: Yeah, so I'll touch on both of those. So altitude is basically the height that we're orbiting at. The International Space Station, for example, orbits somewhere around 400 kilometers above Earth's surface. Okay. And now the attitude is what orientation that is in space. So if you imagine in your mind a rectangular prism, you might have the long axis of that rectangular prism pointing towards Earth, or you might have it pointing along the direction that you're traveling in. So how that spacecraft or that piece of debris is oriented in space tells us about the attitude. Cool. And now to get on to the second part of that, the magnetic field influencing that, Most spacecraft are made out of aluminum or other non-ferrous metals, so the Earth's magnetic field isn't going to interact with the spacecraft that much. But what we can do is take advantage of that magnetic field to orient our spacecraft in specific ways by using what are called magnetorquers. So these are devices that will produce their own magnetic field, which will then interact with the Earth's magnetic field and attempt to align those poles so that we can get some kind of orientation change of our satellite.
0: Can we maybe do that to help orient the giant bus that's hurtling through space?
1: Yeah, there have been some papers published on, you know, slapping these kind of small modules onto tumbling space debris yeah. and either using reaction wheels or magnetorquers in order to stabilize that orientation of that piece of debris and then going and grabbing onto it so that it's in a safer configuration.
0: Sweet. Okay, nice. I'm really glad we were able to make that connection, too. Yeah. Okay, so people are, are really trying to solve this giant hurtling bus problem.
1: Yeah, the European Space Agency, I mean, it's their bus that's up there. They did have a mission for a while that was planning on going and grabbing that piece of debris and bringing it back into Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Last I heard, though, I believe that mission has been canceled. I'm not too sure why that happened, but space debris is something that a lot of people and all of the big organizations are concerned about, and they're definitely looking into.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess we'll have to wait until they release the new bus schedule. (laughs) Okay. Alrighty. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Believe it or not, our time is nearly up and we're at the final Uh. question. Last question of the day to close things off. Kind of a thought experiment. You're standing at the foot of a giant auditorium, thousand seater packed to the brim, all eyes on you. What do you tell the audience?
1: Honestly, given the state of the world that we're in, I would just ask them to be kind to themselves, be kind to others, and be kind to the planet that we call home. Like we're going through some tough times right now and even in the best of times, you don't know what the person beside you go is going through. You might be going through tough times yourself, so just give yourself a little bit of leeway, be nice to those people that are beside you, and give someone on the street a smile or a wave. And hopefully you're wearing a mask and all that good stuff. But just be friendly, be kind.
0: Words of wisdom,
3: Yeah.
0: Mitchell the wise, Mitchell the compassionate, Mitchell the intellectual. Thank you so much, Mitchell Cornell, for being on the show today. Absolute pleasure. So excited for you to be embarking on a PhD that you've pivoted fields. Sounds like you're super into it and you're really loving it. So that came through today, at least for me. I really appreciate this.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I had a great time. I'm happy to be here. Hopefully, I'll be able to come back in a couple of years when I know what my research actually looks like. We're
0: still going to be here, I can assure you that much. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Take it easy. Thank you. Bye. Welcome back. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what's the secret to academic success? How do we solve the localization problem for autonomous mobile robots? What are the keys to success for communication within and between groups of autonomous agents? And how has nature inspired an entire field of engineering? What's the most advanced form of GPS on planet Earth? And how does the wisdom of crowds apply to groups of autonomous robots? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many many more on today's episode of Abstract, The Future of Science. Let's get going. Dr. Ali Safai is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at McGill University. His research interests include cooperative control and localization algorithms for swarms of flying and ground autonomous mobile robots. Ali was awarded a MITACS Accelerate Fund for his two year postdoc position in collaboration with Humanitas Solutions, his industry partner. He also received a postgraduate fellowship from the World Academy of Sciences to complete his PhD at University Sains, Malaysia. Ali is co-author of more than 20 international journal and conference-proceeding papers in the field of control engineering. His hobbies include soccer, cinema, and history. You can find more information about Ali's work by looking him up on Google Scholar, and you can contact him directly by email. I'll put the link in the description of the episode. Ali, you're the most experienced, most published guest on the show so far, with I think 23 technical papers under your belt. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the
3: show. Thank you very much, Jeremy, and hello to you and uh, your audience. I am also very uh, exciting to be at your episode this is this is also really exciting. I have
0: only had one postdoc on the show before Ryan Persram in psychology and he was just beginning his postdoc. And so from what I understand, you're actually nearing the end of yours. Yes, right,
3: right, exactly.
0: So we're going to be able to get really really deep into the nitty-gritty. I mean, I've had I've had people on the on the show who are just starting their master's degree. So this is a very interesting unique position to be in. And honestly, first and foremost, I just want to ask you What's the secret to your success? I mean, you're an extremely prolific
3: publisher. How did you do it? Is there a secret? (laughs) First of all, thank you for this appreciation of my work. I can say the only thing is the perseverance and keep hard working. That's it. You can see uh, I have done this multiple publication, mostly during my PhD, which was uh, completed just less than two years and a half. That's fast. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we can say that uh, com- compared to, the, for example, uh, the normal time for completing a PhD, yes, it's a little bit fast. But uh, you know, for example, during my time at PhD, I was trying to have at least two articles being under reviewed on journals at all of my days during the PhD. You you can say that this is a this is a secret, something like that. <laughs> you
0: know? Sure. Yeah. That's the mathematics behind it all. I'm curious. Is it that in Malaysia? the expectation is that you'll finish your PhD in two and a half years? Or did you just blow right through it really quickly compared to others?
3: Uh, No, I should have uh, finished my PhD within three or four years, okay? But uh, the minimum number of uh, years that I would be allowed to defense my PhD thesis is two years. So it means that after two years, I would be allowed to finish my thesis upon the decision of my supervisor and the committee of the school. Yeah. So, so after finishing my first two years, I was discussing with my PhD supervisor and say that, okay, I think uh, I'm almost done and I, I have published enough papers in the publication. I guess uh, we can go for the defense. And he said that, yeah, for sure. Why not? (laughs) That's
0: amazing. I I think that's just super cool. I mean, I, as the listeners might know, if they've been with me since the beginning, I withdrew from my master's degree. Okay, so we're very different people. You (laughs) have gone through every single stage of the academic ladder, been extremely well published. And I just remember being absolutely terrified of even trying to get a single paper published. Oh, really? So I think it's, it's, it's really beautiful to listen to you talk about the ease with which you were able to do that. And the fact that, like you said, you always had a couple of papers in the works. Yeah. Yeah, so that's awesome. Okay, so that's the secret to your success. I guess
3: there's there's maybe a little bit more to that, but at least on the surface, yeah, we've got uh, that. I, you know, I just wanted to, I said, you know, always people are looking at the published paper while we know that there were some rejected papers. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, okay. so, so I wanted to mention that, you know... In the way of publishing more, you will get more rejected materials as well. So you shouldn't be disappointed and keep working, keep continuing until getting accepted. Might I ask how many times you got rejected? At least five, I remember. Okay. At least five.
0: Okay. I think that's still a pretty good rate. If you okay. get 23 published and only five rejected, but hey, for the listeners, if you're looking to publish, just know, even Ali got rejected with all of his papers that he got through. Rejection is just an inherent part of the yeah, process. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so something that's super cool that I want to also point out is way back on episode 11, we had Eitan Bolka talking about drones and dynamics and control systems. It turns out Ali is actually in the same
3: lab as Aton. Yeah, and mostly the basic concepts are almost the same, but different applications.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: okay, so yeah, so we're going to get into the
0: applications today. Obviously, if you want to learn about ATAN's research in the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab, more focused on drones, like I said, dynamics and control systems, that's episode 11. Today, we're going to be talking about related topics, including, like was mentioned in the introduction, swarms of autonomous robots, and also robots on the ground. And we didn't talk about that last time. So just maybe for a quick refresher, Ali, do you want to give us an idea about what autonomous mobile robots really
3: are? Okay, sure, sure. Uh, The meaning is behind the words, autonomous mobile robots. They are robots that moving around autonomously without any supervision of the human. So we, we can have autonomous mobile robots on the ground. We can have autonomous mobile robots flying and also, we have we can have uh, autonomous mobile robots underwater. Yeah, but uh, mostly I was working on autonomous uh, flying and ground mobile robots, but uh, specifically on their swarms. I mean, when when we have uh, multiple of them in a team moving around and doing a, a requested job, and also more more importantly, the localization task of them. You know, when 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 we are speaking about uh, autonomous mobile robots, one main concept is having the automatic control of these mobile robots to move around. And also, we have a very specific important problem problem of the state estimation or position estimation. As simply, we should know that where the robot is currently in order to command it to move toward its destination. Well, so hold on a
0: second. Are we trying to let
3: them be autonomous or are we trying to command them? Which one is it? Is oh, it a mix? You know, you know when, when, when I'm saying the command, it, this command could come from the automatic control implemented on the robot. Okay. You see that? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we are commanding the robot in a higher level. For example, we want the robot to, for example, go from destination A to destination B. This is our command, okay? Uh-huh. The lower level command, like how you should move toward this path or trajectory, how you should find your trajectory, would be defined using the automatic control implemented on the robot. So, I I want to emphasize the importance of uh, the localization topic.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's get into that then. So, what are some of the problems that we get into when we try and localize either individual autonomous robots or robots within a group? Are there different problems with each?
3: Short answer, yes. There are a little bit different. Okay. Okay. But if I want to be much more uh, specific, when we are speaking about the localization problem... We have the localization problem in indoor areas and in outdoor areas. In outdoor areas, mostly we are using GPS. In indoor areas, we don't have access to GPS. Mm-hmm. So there are some other technologies that we can use for indoor localization. Even for outdoor localization, when the dimensions of a robot is very small, the accuracy provided with normal GPS technology would not be sufficient for us to rely on. So there are some other technologies, right? RTK GPS, which is a little bit expensive that we can use for that. But back to your question, when uh, we want to localize a team of autonomous mobile robots or a swarm, there are some information within that network of mobile robots that we can use in order to improve and enhance our localization solution. What kind of information are you talking about? Okay, I'm talking about the relative distance or relative position information that we can get from the neighboring or adjacent agents in the network, adjacent mobile robots in the network. For example, assume that you and I, we are moving together in a, a mall, okay? Visually, we, we are transmitting some information considering of a relative distance or relative position. For example, we will keep our distance in order to move properly in that mall. So these are some information I'm talking about. Actually, in a swarm of drones also, we can use this relative position and relative distance information in order to improve the localization solution and reach a cheaper and more reliable localization solution. Yeah. So each of the autonomous robots in a swarm, let's say
0: we're imagining a flying swarm now, you're saying each of those is kind of aware of the position
3: of each of the other ones? They could be or they couldn't be. Okay. According, according to the communication network that we are defining among them, we can say that some agents would have some information about the position of the other or neighboring agents. If the other neighboring agents are located within their coverage radius, I mean, if they are not too away from them.
0: So okay, this is very interesting. I was just reading a book recently called The Wisdom of Crowds. And one of the main points they made in this book was that it's better to opt to ask a group of people what their opinion is on making a decision than to ask the most expert person in that group. Because on average, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So does the same kind of thing operate in a swarm? Is it actually better if every single robot in the swarm knows where every other robot is? Or is it better to have one or maybe a handful of so-called experts who know where everybody is, but everyone else is kind of in the dark?
3: Okay, first, this concept of average knowledge of the team is interpreted in the technical uh, domain of the cooperative control of swarm as consensus. Okay. So we can say that the agents should reach consensus over their states or their position in order to move smoothly as a team, as a swarm in the environment. So this consensus is important. So regarding this question that which of these are important, actually having a leader or a knowledgeable expert to have information of the whole Mm -hmm. network or let all the agents in the network transmit or uh, communicate their information together According to the proved mathematical concepts, we can say that reaching consensus without a very knowledgeable expert would be much more applicable and uh, reliable. So I'm saying that it is better to have a localization and cooperative control algorithm that is relying on the transmitted information between all of the agents in the network. Got okay. But but sometimes it would be difficult to have a full network of communication between all the agents. For example, if the agents are very far away from each other, our communication technology wouldn't allow us to have this full communication network. On that occasion, we are going to uh, develop and uh, suggest some solutions that rely on few number of communication links in the network. For example, there is a well-known concept in the communication of swarms named as uh, a spanning tree. This spanning tree is something like uh, having a root, and there is a path to all of the agents from that root, or that leader agent, so...
0: I see. It isn't like everybody's connected to everybody else, but there's kind of this pathway. Yeah, yeah, just there is a path. Okay, so there is kind of like a leader. It isn't like they're omniscient, like they aren't the only one that has information. There's still communication between the swarm. Exactly. Okay. So,
3: so just to be clear, what is the best orientation then? It depends on our application. If we have an application that we can have a full network of communication between the agents, for sure we should use all of the available communication. But mm. if we have some applications that uh, the communication are not available for all of the agents in the network, we should rely on the available spanning trees. Okay. So like if there are
0: kind of nodes or individual robots in the network and they're too far away, it isn't actually worth
3: including them in this communication. Exactly. exactly. Okay. But still, we should solve the localization and control problem. So we should provide some solutions that rely on fewer number of communication links and it still works properly. Is this because
0: of just the like because it's very computationally expensive to actually have them all connected? Like, what's the limitation? Is it money? Is it time? No,
3: it's, it's like technology limitation. For example, we know that yeah. the Wi-Fi communication range, or Bluetooth communication range, or ultra-wideband communication range, all of them have some limitation of covering. So this is the main limitation. Got it. Right. I can't access my Wi-Fi network if I'm
0: in Honolulu. Yes, for sure. (laughs) It's a little too far. (laughs) Okay, so this whole time I've been picturing swarms of birds, in a sense. Is your research and is this field heavily influenced by the concept of biomimicry? Biomimicry being the production of materials or systems based on the influence of things found in nature.
3: Yes, exactly. The first published works by the researchers in this field of cooperative control and localization for swarm or flocking of mobile agents are influenced by the way that the birds or ants are moving around Mm. very smoothly. So bringing the concept of those relative information from birds flying around, there are some solutions based on just relative information among the agents in the network. Yeah, exactly. So what do we see in flocks of birds? Do we see this path
0: integration like you mentioned? Or does every bird know where every other bird is? Or neither?
3: We can say that, as I can see, each bird knows where its neighboring agents are. And they are trying to keep their distance, their position to their neighbors. And (laughs) when, when we are seeing this as a whole, we can have a flocking movement of that team. I'm kind
0: of picturing like in a giant like, uh, soccer stadium when everybody does the wave. You yeah. know it's your turn to stand up and raise your arms just when your neighbor is, but you don't need to really focus on
3: anything else. Yes, exactly. So okay. you you can see the r- importance of the relative information, relative position. Yeah. Information. And also recently I'm sure that you have seen the light shows flying multiple drones in the air. For example, in the uh, ceremonies of the New Year. In all around the world, there are lots of uh, flying drones yeah. uh, flying at night and uh, showcase or demonstrate a shape of something, right? Uh, okay. The concept of relative position information are also implemented over there. Although there are uh, some other technologies, but uh, one of the main concepts is that. Oh, this is crazy. I feel like the applications for this are endless. Like in
0: terms of satellites, for example, where you can send up a bunch of separate components and they can all self-arrange. Yeah. Are there applications like that currently? Like, I mean, this is an aerospace mechatronics lab. Yeah. Do you deal
3: with the aerospace side and satellites? Currently, I am not working on I, I don't. I'm not uh, active. Actually, I don't have any active project on the satellite things. But uh, I do have some uh, projects uh, on the uh, collaborative payload transport with uh, usage of uh, four or multiple drones. Okay. Again, uh, this could be another application of cooperative control and localization and uh, still we can see the importance of relative position information.
0: Alright, it's time for some fun facts. we got three today. Fun fact number one. The asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter contains tons of debris. The average asteroid in the asteroid belt is a million miles from its nearest neighbor. Not the crowded place we might imagine in our minds or have seen in film. Number two. Tectonic plate movement is currently pushing Greenland westward at one half inch per year, approximately the speed of growth of a human fingernail. And number three, one parsec, or parallax second, is equivalent to 3.26 light years, a distance nearly unfathomable by the human mind. Okay, so all of this so far, it sounds like we're talking about things happening outside, so we can use GPS. But what about inside? You said things change because we don't have access to GPS inside. Does everything we just spoke about fall apart when we lose GPS? Or can we still apply the things we just spoke about to, let's say, indoor swarms or maybe just autonomous mobile
3: robots inside? Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, we don't have access to GPS or RTK GPS indoor. Just for information, for implementing those uh, flying drones demonstrating the light shows, we are depending on RTK GPS which is pretty much accurate uh, within 10 centimeters accuracy, and also they are expensive. But when we are working indoor, we don't have access to GPS nor uh, RTK GPS. So there are some other technologies that we can use for localization of single mobile robots or a swarm of mobile robots. One of the best technology I can say is ultra-wideband technology. This ultra-wideband technology is actually based on the RF signal, which are transmitted between one receiver and one transmitter and by measuring the time of flight of that signal there are some technologies some algorithms to do this time of flight measurement we can estimate the distance between these two modules and uh, by incorporating multiple distance measurements with multiple sender receivers we can somehow propose a localization solution for 2d and 3d environments this solution can be used for single agent and also of mobile robots. Okay, hold on.
0: A couple of things. So you said there's communication between senders and receivers? Yeah. By virtue of RF signals? Radio frequency? Yes.
3: Radio frequency signals. Right. Okay.
0: So like the same thing that radio towers are are using so that when I turn the radio on in my car, I get a radio signal? Same kind of thing.
3: And Wi-Fi technology that we are using in our house also are uh, RF signals. Okay. So ultra-wideband technology is another RF technology like Wi-Fi, but in a different frequency level, higher frequency level, and they have uh, some properties that help us to measure distances or measure the time of flight of sending and receiving a RF signal much more accurately. And this is the m- most important thing when we are doing the localization indoor. Okay. I want to build a picture for myself,
0: okay? Because this is some pretty dense stuff. I know you've published 23 papers on, on this and unrelated concepts, but this is I'm, I'm hearing this stuff for the first time. Let's just pick one thing to focus on right now. So ground mobile robots, how are they different from, for example,
3: airborne mobile robots in terms of this communication? Actually, in terms of the communication, there are not too much difference, but there are much more difference in the definition of the localization problem. When we are working with... Uh, Mobile robots, our localization problem, is defined in two-dimensional environment, not 3D environment.
0: Right, okay. If all the
3: robots are on the ground, then it's kind of like a two-dimensional plane. Yes,
0: yes. Like ants on a table.
3: Yeah, and what happens then? Then our localization problem would be easier and can be accomplished with lower number of fixed anchors in the environment. When I'm saying fixed anchors, there are some fixed receiver or modules attached to the other environment with fixed position. Oh, this is like virtual reality. I've seen my friends play VR before, and
0: when you set up the virtual reality space, you have to put a couple of cameras that just sit there,
3: and then their relative location can create the 3D environment. Is it like that, kind of? This is something like that. This is also a localization solution in 2D or 3D environment using cameras. I I wanted also to point out, after speaking about this ultra-wideband technology, For example, I I already know that the camera technology can be used also as a a solution for indoor relative and uh, absolute position estimation. Yeah, you know, this technology can be used for single and also a swarm of autonomous mobile robots. When we want to implement this solution, we should attach some fixed modules to the environment. We can name them as anchors. These anchors Mm. are located within fixed known locations. Yeah, and we have also one module attached to our uh, robots. Either it is mobile robot or it is flying robots, and we are receiving or we are estimating the distance of that robot to all of those fixed anchors. Got it. And since we know the known position of those anchors, and we can have uh, some solutions for estimating the location of that mobile robot, either it is in 2D or it is in 3D. You know, the concept is exactly the same as uh, using GPS outdoor. In GPS technology also, we are receiving the time of flight and then distance to the satellites flying around the Earth. Since we know the, the, the location of those satellites, we can estimate the position of our GPS module underground. But when we are going to have localization problem in swarm of indoor mobile robots, we can propose some enhanced solutions. How? by incorporating less information from the fixed anchor and rely our solution more on the relative position information between the agents in the network how are we getting that though because we don't have gps anymore right okay yeah but we can attach uh, those ultra wideband receiver module to all of the modules mm. so so since we have these modules attached to each agent in the network we can have some algorithms to provide a relative position between them and it would help us do the localization of the whole network with fewer number of fixed anchor in the environment. This is a very, very interesting thing because, you know, when we are speaking about a very large environment, it couldn't be that easy to install lots of fixed anchors in the environment. And it, is, it would be also expensive. So uh-huh. the competition is to reach a solution that can deliver us good localization accuracy with less number of fixed anchor attached to the environment.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. I feel like I need like three weeks to digest all of this. Okay. Sorry sorry about that. No, no, no. It's great. You're just an endless repository of knowledge, and you're you're. It's just this is amazing. Thank you for sharing this knowledge with us. It is my pleasure. Um, yeah. So it sounds like the technologies that are being used here aren't necessarily completely new but they're based on older technologies like you're saying it for example it's very expensive to get all these anchors set up but i remember okay this might sound a bit weird i remember back in uh 2008 okay when i used to play a lot of guitar hero there was a video that i saw about how they got the characters in the game to look like they were actually playing guitar and they used a technology called motion capture yes and so With motion capture, I remember seeing people wear these these black suits with, like, a bunch of little colored balls. And all the balls were able to detect where each limb was in space, and they could map that computationally. Are you basically using a
3: glorified motion capture suit on these robots? They can say a very cheaper one. Cheaper? Exactly. You know, motion capturing system is very expensive. Oh, why? Because you are going to install multiple cameras around when you want to have a very accurate position estimation within 10 centimeters accuracy, we should have at least, for example, in the area of uh, 5 meter by 5 meter by 5 meters, we should have at least about 6 or 8 huge camera installed in environment, and it is very expensive. Oh, okay. okay. And, and another thing, we should have a very strong computation module installed in our environment to process all of these data. But mm. using this UWB technology, we can get rid of those a strong computation module also we can have very cheaper solution why i'm saying that cheaper because the price of each sender or receiver ultra module is uh, i can say 100 times cheaper than a camera to be installed uh, in the environment i mean yeah. uh, I'm, I'm speaking about the very accurate large camera with large lenses to be installed in, in the environment so when yeah. we are comparing the price they are very reasonable But we will drop a little bit of our accuracy, for example, from within 10 centimeters, we will reach uh, at the level of accuracy of within 30 centimeters or 20 centimeters accuracy, which which is still reliable. Okay, hold on a second. 20 to 30 centimeters is almost a foot.
0: How big are these autonomous robots? If they're more than a foot wide, technically they could
3: crash into each other. Yeah, but here there would be some other solutions that will help us in order to avoid their collision to the environment or to each other? I would hope so. (laughs) We can name that technology as obstacle avoidance, obstacle detection, or collision avoidance technologies, and I guess we are not going to speak about them. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not going to get into that hugely, although with ATAN, we did talk a little bit about um,
0: obstacle detection and maneuvering and stuff like that. So once again, episode 11, in case you're curious. So we initially spoke about, just as a quick review, we initially spoke about outdoors, using gps to localize swarms solving the localization problem then we now just talked about sending and receiving ultra wideband technology for indoors both for ground robots in two dimensions and for flying swarms in three dimensions yeah exactly where do we go from here can we can we have swarms in four dimensions
3: can we (laughs) can we make a time machine here up to now we already spoke about the localization problem a lot but we can also speak about the control problem as well of this swarm. When we are speaking about the control problem of a swarm of drones, we can also use that uh, relative position information in order to enhance our control solution to be implemented, distributed, not centralized on an external machine or on one of the agents. I mean, when I'm saying that distributed control algorithm is is like that we are implementing control algorithms, same control algorithms on all of the agents that we have in the environment, without any change in a computation level at each module, and we don't need to have any central control extension in order to control the movement of the swarms. So using these cooperative control solutions and the relative position information among the agents, we can reach some distributed control solution in order to let the swarm move around on itself. So
0: this is very interesting, because to bring it back to that book I was reading called The Wisdom of Crowds, there are a couple of key things that that was mentioned about the importance of maximizing, you could say, the intelligence of the group. One of them is decentralization, like you're speaking about, but the other one is diversity. And so if you have a group of people who all have access to the same knowledge, then they're completely homogeneous. There's no diversity in... So when you have different backgrounds and information access and you bring those people together, that's when you maximize intelligence. But what you're telling me here is that All of the robots in the swarm now have access to the same information. So would that not make them less intelligent because they all just know the same thing? Or is there clearly a fundamental difference
3: between humans and robots here? About this information, as you mentioned, they are same in their type of the information. All of the information is the position or the velocity or something like that. But this information is different from one agent to another agent. Okay? Okay. And... uh, transmitting these same type of information but different values would make sense in order to have good cooperative control for the whole thing yeah and another thing you just mentioned like something interesting about homogeneous network versus non-homogeneous network yeah you know we can have a network or actually a swarm of flying and ground mobile robots that makes our network to be non-homogeneous different dynamic systems oh
0: that's crazy. So, okay.
3: And and there are lots of research work on that. So, we can have also cooperative control and localization solution for non-homogeneous swarms. Oh, my. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's so beautiful. Okay.
0: So, like, having communication between the two-dimensional space on the ground and the three-dimensional space in the air. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's, we we, that's we can have
3: some solutions for that as well. Oh,
0: that's so good.
3: Ugh. Okay, are you working at all in uh, non-homogeneous systems? You know, when, when we are developing cooperative control algorithms and localization solutions, on, on the first spot, we are thinking about uh, solutions to have generic applications. So when we are developing the algorithms and providing mathematical proof of them, we consider the generic type of systems that are included in our networks. So When we are considering generic type of systems in our network, in our system, we can say that this swarm could be homogeneous or non-homogeneous. Although I have developed some cooperative control and uh, localization solution for generic type of systems in the net swarm, but I didn't implement those solutions on practical cases. Yet, yet. But hopefully, yet later. (laughs) Sure, sure. So I did actually just want to
0: talk briefly about the fact that you're currently writing a book, which is on model-free
3: controllers. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah. Uh, actually, this is uh, an extension of uh, my previous published paper and also my PhD work about model-free data-driven control algorithms. When I'm saying that model-free, from its name, we can say that it is not based on some defined models or dynamic models of the system. So we can have a generic definition of our dynamic system and then define a control algorithm just based on the output of the system, output measured with the sensors and also the control inputs fed into the system. So, in terms of model-free control algorithms, we have automatic control algorithms which don't rely on the well-defined dynamic model of the system, just we are using the input-output data sets of the system. Yeah, I, as you mentioned, yes, I am just uh, in a collaboration with a research group in Romania in order to prepare that book for uh, CRC Press. And yeah. uh, we hope that it would be published in uh, mid of year uh, 2021. That's soon. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, uh, I am responsible for uh, three of eight chapters. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the chapters uh, are about defining and uh, developing a cooperative model-free control algorithm for swarm of mobile agents. It, it could be drones or... Ground mobile robots. Yeah. So the reason why I ask
0: specifically is because if somebody listens to this episode and they want to get the real deal, I want to be able to provide a link to be able to get your book, access to your book. So obviously, since the book's not yet available, I won't have the link, but we're going to keep in touch. And the moment it becomes available for for purchase – I'm going to make sure that I incorporate that link into the description. So, future listeners, if the book is already out, please go check the description because you might find it there.
3: Sure, sure. It, it will be yeah. my
0: pleasure. Absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. Obviously, we can't get into every single nitty-gritty detail here, but for those who are really just fascinated by this topic, which include myself, then I'm really looking forward to uh, scanning through this, what will sh- surely be a very dense book on the topic. So, that's that's awesome. This brings us to our last question, okay? Final question. You can interpret this either in the context of academia or just life in general, okay? Imagine you're standing at the foot of an auditorium. It's a thousand-person auditorium, and every single seat is filled. All eyes are on you. What do you tell the audience? <laughs>
3: um, I would say just... Uh, yes. Keep working and do what you love most in this world. Are you doing what you love most? Exactly. I always, from my beginning of the career in academia or industry, I was trying to keep going what I was mostly passionate about, being passionate about. So, yeah, and currently I'm also trying to, to do my hard work in what I'm uh, exciting about more. I think we just figured out what the real secret is behind your
0: 23 publications. It's the passion and yeah, the motivation passion and the love cancer, yeah. for what you do. That and also having a couple of papers on the back burner at all times. <laughs> yeah, <Cool>. sure. <laughs> awesome. Ali, this was so cool. Thank you so much for getting involved and being on the show today. I really appreciate your presence here. Have an awesome rest of the day. Like I said, we're going to keep in touch because I want to hear
3: when that book comes out. Sure. Thank you very much. I also I was also very happy to have this interview with you. I I, I also wish you... All the best uh, Thank you so for, much. Uh, for what you are doing. Awesome. I hope to continue to do this for many, many years to
0: come. So listeners, stay for tuned. For sure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Ali, thanks again so much. Take
3: care. Thank you and goodbye. Take care.
0: Before we hop into things, here's a list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear on today's episode. So we talk about how airplanes generate lift, the benefit of a high thrust to weight ratio, The kinds of people you find in the robotics community, what it means to do research in an aerospace mechatronics lab, the ubiquity of Newton's second law of motion, aerial dynamics, the 12 dimensions of control laws, and applications of both of these systems, motion planning, and speaking of planning, Eitan also claims that it's easy to make time for something when you love it. So get ready for all that, and of course, much more in today's episode. Let's go. Natan Balka is a robotics researcher working toward the PhD degree in the Aerospace Mechatronics Laboratory at McGill University. His research interests include control and motion planning of robotic systems, with a focus on aerospace applications. He's published several peer-reviewed conference and journal papers related to the autonomy of agile fixed-wing unmanned aerial vehicles. Outside the academic world, Aton has been hired as an unmanned aerial systems consultant for various companies in the U.S. and Canada. Outside of the engineering world, Aton enjoys playing recreational sports and was recently inducted into the McGill Intramural Sports Hall of Fame. So we've got a real treat this week. Aton Bolka, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Welcome to the podcast. PhD student extraordinaire. Um, There's a lot going on in this introduction, and so we're basically going to be breaking it down word by word, so by the end of this, there are no more questions. Sounds good. At least on the surface. So I think before we, we do hop into the exact explanation of what you're doing now, I'm curious how one finds themselves in a PhD studying aerospace mechatronics, without getting into the details of what that even means yet. What's your background like academically?
2: So I started uh, as a typical undergrad student in mechanical engineering in, at McGill. And uh, my third year, there, there's this program you can enter where you write a thesis as opposed to doing a capstone. Okay. What's a uh, design? So capstone is like a design project. You work on a team. And mm-hmm. instead of doing that, you can just kind of pair up with a professor. He gives you like a baby master's kind of project called like honors thesis yep and so I started with this my supervisor Mayor Nahon and I we got along great and so after a bit of time in the undergrad thesis he says oh do you want to join the lab for the summer full-time so I said sure then after the summer you know he's like do you want to join the lab for a master's said yeah why not that's good news and then uh, then halfway through the masters. He's like, okay, you know, you can graduate now, or you could just switch to the PhD. Uh, And I just didn't feel like leaving
0: at that time. So I I said, why not switch to the... So you fast-tracked. So I did a fast-track. So you do not have a master's degree, and you will never have a master's degree. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. I guess for those listeners who are either at the undergraduate level or have not heard what a fast-track is, it's basically when you skip out on finishing your two-year preliminary masters and after one year you can just shoot directly into continuing your project into a phd is that correct exactly yeah okay so it was it was love at first flight Um, (laughs) perfect were you working on on aerospace stuff there like what was your what was your undergraduate honors thesis like
2: yeah so the the whole lab the focus is is on robotics I guess control and dynamics, which I can uh, go into a bit more later, and in the majority of that work is also towards ro- robots that fly. So my undergraduate project was using quadrotors, which is like a typical drone that you, commercial drone you see, and studying the effects of wind on their flight. Quadrotor
0: meaning four rotors or four? four yeah, exactly. it's sorry like four separate like battery powered propellers. Is that how I could, I could imagine it? Um, so yeah, four propellers, one battery. One battery. Um, but that's the standard
2: one you would see like someone in a park flying filming is, is the scientific word is quad rotor.
0: Quad rotor, okay, four rotors, perfect, okay. So these, are, these, are, these, are, these machines are accessible to myself. Yes, for, a for
2: about $500 you could buy yourself a pretty nice one that could take off out of the palm of your hand. There's different modes to you know, take a selfie, things
0: like that. All um, the things that I would wanna do on a nice Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Have a quadrotor just take off from my hand and take a selfie with me. I get lots <laughs> of selfies. So clearly if there's an entire research field based on understanding the dynamics of wind effects on these things, if I'm spending $500 on a machine, it's not gonna be perfectly uh, functional in every kind of environment.
2: Yes, right? exactly.
0: So what kind of environments would make me uh, have to purchase a new new machine after it inevitably breaks in these strong winds? Like, are, are we talking hurricanes or is this technology really not able yet to withstand even, you know, m- mid-level intensity in terms of climate? Well,
2: I think now, so by the way, that that project started oh, at this point was five, six years ago. So okay. it, it evolved quite quickly. And, and now even in pretty strong winds, they would be fine. Okay. There probably is some spec, like don't fly in, in a hurricane, but
0: <laughs> you know,
2: in no, normal conditions, it would be fine.
0: Okay. Okay, perfect. Okay. So your, your, your undergrad project Is that what you're still working on now like six years later is this the continuation or have you no 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 completely separate it was just
2: like that was my undergrad project then for grad studies you know i shifted into something uh different
0: okay so you started with the quad rotors which as we just explained are kind of these these basic could be even basic entry level drones that you could purchase for half a grand and they work in pretty much all windy conditions, uh, barring hurricanes, so, so that's good. Now, the fact that you're doing a PhD means that there's something else going on with wind, something that we don't know yet. Yeah, well, uh, let me, so my PhD is not about wind,
2: so I'll- uh, <laughs> okay, that explains so I'll, I'll, You figured out wind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so I, I, for my PhD, I'm working with a different platform. So okay. um, quad rotors, they have no wing, they're just four propellers, that, you know, push down air to keep themselves afloat, which is a lot less efficient than a fixed wing aircraft. A fixed wing aircraft generates lift from its wing as it flies naturally. So you're not expending energy to keep it in the air.
0: Mm. Like now, a helicopter is, would be kind of more similar than to a quad rotor than a, a commercial airplane. Exactly. Yes. Okay.
2: So now there's advantages to both you know a helicopter or a quadrotor can just take off vertically can stay in one place you know survey an area but the drawback is for long distance flight well one it can't fly as long and it's also less energy efficient okay now there's this emerging class of unmanned aerial vehicles which try to take the best of both worlds So they can take off vertically and then transition into a traditional fixed wing flight. It's like a
0: hybrid, basically.
2: It's a hybrid, yes. And there's, there's a lot of variants of these type of platforms. Like there's many that would look quite differently. But conceptually, they're all the same in that they can take off vertically. They can hover in one place. But then they can also generate lift from a wing. And th- those platforms are much less understood, and that's what my PhD is on.
0: Okay. Right off the bat, the trickiest part of that whole hybrid system seems to be the the transition between being more like a quadrotor, more like a helicopter, to then more like uh, an airplane. So like, I'm imagining the transfer of lift being tricky. I, I also want to make sure, because I do have a bit of physics background, but the listeners might not necessarily, so can we just super basically talk about what lift even is and like maybe a, just a slight introduction into how it is that lift is generated differently in a, a fixed wing airplane as you call it versus a quad rotor
2: yeah so if you imagine you know a, a traditional fixed wing aircraft it has a propulsion system so like a, a smaller plane will have a propeller those are easier to understand so you know a propeller it spins pushes the airflow back and that's what propels the vehicle forward and then the wing similarly does something similar it just pushes
0: the air down which then pushes the aircraft up so it's just the shape of the wing basically like the wing doesn't have propellers in it. like the the wings are separate than the propellers but they are still manipulating the air in a way so that creates that so lift then is is what exactly well so it's
2: the lift is the generation of force from you know some wing or
0: surface perfect thing, like that. okay that that ultimately brings you up away from the earth right lift is yes. lift is li- literally lifting you that's, what, that's yeah, that exactly. comes from. Yeah. okay perfect um, so make sure everyone's
2: on the same page here and so with these hybrid platforms so if you imagine a kind of a traditional fixed wing aircraft that had a really really strong propeller that you know you could just instead of taking on a runway you just go vertically upwards that's essentially the platforms that i work with have so they have
0: a a thrust to weight ratio of around two and a half Um, thrust to weight ratio can you give me an idea of of like what two and a half even means in terms of compared to other stuff yeah
2: yeah so so thrust you can think of similar to lift but it's essentially Force generated by this propeller is called yep. thrust. Okay. Um, so it it can ha- generate two and a half times the force of the weight. So in order to take off vertically, right. you would need at least a ratio of higher than one.
0: Um, oh, okay, sure. So so humans then like like when I jump, my my thrust to weight ratio is. Well, what is it? I'm I'm able to jump. So is it? Is it has to be one? bigger than one. Yeah. Okay. But but a,
2: a conventional aircraft that you would you know fly on is less than one. I don't roughly know. I don't know exactly know what it is. But okay. Maybe it's around a half or something, right? That's why you cannot take
0: off vertically. So something magical happens at one.
2: Well, yeah, rough. Uh, but you need a little bit of room for.
0: Right. For <laughs> Other air, things. But,
2: but yeah, so you have to be probably to take off vertically. You need at least like one and a half. Okay um so so yeah you're right this transition is difficult so you you would take off vertically and you're generating all the force that's being generated to keep the aircraft in the air is through this propeller through this thrust and then as you transition into a more traditional flight path it's now generate it's the force that's keeping it in the air is coming from the
0: wing from that lift and, there's a, and a lot less is coming from this propeller. And does that continue to transition away from the propeller? Is it, I, I don't know if, if you drive a manual transmission car or you know how. I do not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I won't use the analogy, but I guess I'll go for it. In a manual transmission car, uh, sorry, did I say manual or did I say standard? No, oh, you said manual. That's the same thing. Manual standard is, is the same. So in like an automatic transmission, you just press the gas and, you, and you're good to go. In a manual transmission, when you want to change a gear, there's a there's like a third pedal basically, which is a clutch. And you basically clutch down into that pedal to change gears. And there's a transitional period as you're changing gears, which I'm thinking of as this transition from changing how your lift comes, which happens very gradually as you lift your foot off of the clutch pedal and put your foot back onto the gas. There's a trade-off. Is that kind of how the trade off works between the lift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only difference, I mean, I
2: guess it happens in a similar time frame too. It happens, you know, quite quickly. Um, and that is what a lot of people view as the hardest part of uh, of controlling these things is that transitional period. And you said it's really just a few
0: seconds or? Yeah, less than it. Actually, probably
2: half a second. Yeah.
0: Uh, what? Half a second where you can transition from the thrust. Coming from these propellers to from the wings.
2: Yeah. So this is you know for a fairly small scale platform. If, in the industry, they're actually working on these self-flying uh, taxis, where you have a person in this flying machine mm-hmm. that sort of similar similar idea takes off vertically and then sort of transitions. It,
0: it, that on those platforms, they typically the actual propellers will rotate. That's what I was imagining. Where. When you're taking off, they're parallel to the ground, and then they rotate to be perpendicular to the ground. So that's for for those systems, yes. And yeah. and that would probably,
2: they're bigger, so it probably takes maybe a couple seconds, probably not half a second. but Okay.
0: So the half second you're talking about is more like the kind of thing that sits in the palm of your hand? Uh, yes, yeah. Okay. See, I was imagining like something the size of a commercial airplane no, transitioning no, 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 no. in half a second. I'm like, dude, the future is now. <laughs> Okay, so we're not there yet. But you're still saying a, like a, an actual human being, so something on the order of 50 to 100 kilograms being displaced where it only takes a couple of seconds to make that transition. Yes. And this exists already. Yeah,
2: and those are not like commercially, I don't think you can actually commercially take a flight in one of those, mm-hmm. but they, they exist. They they have prototypes and things like that. And like real human beings have
0: sat in them as in honestly, there, I mean, dummies. I'm
2: not sure, but
0: yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. So, okay, so that's a bit about lift and a bit about the transition. I'm sure we'll we'll probably kind of loop back and 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 hit on these different terms again. I just want to kind of get a a sense of the pond that we're splashing around in over here or flying around in. So aerospace mechatronics. This is what you, you these are the terms you use to describe the PhD that you're doing. Is that more or less specific than like the actual degree name you're going to get. Like I um, I was studying psycholinguistics, but that was a psychology degree. So you're studying aerospace mechatronics. Is it an aerospace mechatronics degree or is it under some larger umbrella?
2: Yeah. So the larger umbrella uh, that I'm in is mechanical engineering. Perfect. Um, however, like in the robotic, the robotics community is made up of computer scientists, electrical engineers, and mechanical engineers. Mm-hmm. And probably some even other fields. Um, so it's, it's on the edge of, you know, mechanical engineering. And then I also end up doing things sort of outside of that field. Then I'd say the name of, of my lab is aerospace mechatronics, which essentially means like mechanical engineering and electronics.
0: Um, and,
2: I mean, this is just the name of the lab, so
0: it's- Right, sorry, yeah, yeah, see, that was my confusion. So this this is, the name of the lab is aerospace mechatronics, yeah. Yeah,
2: Um, and, you know, aerospace things that are in the the air that fly. Um, Like, the more general term that maybe is, would be easier to understand is dynamics and control. Right, Um, these were two words you mentioned earlier, yeah. Is the study of, like, how things move. Newton's
0: laws, F equals ma, that's dynamics. Hold on a second, let's actually talk about F equals ma for a second, because I know what F equals ma is, but I want those out there who don't know F equals ma to to learn all of its beauty. Newton's second law of motion, F equals ma, break it down for us, Tom. Well, it's pretty simple. Force
2: is equal to mass times acceleration, and it's really the core of, of anything that moves, that equation, shows up in
0: various places. So if something has a mass and you want to accelerate it, then there's a force required to do that. Exactly. So you said dynamics and control. So that's kind of the dynamics side. Yeah. So then control is a more probably
2: advanced uh, topic of research. And that is so you control a car, right? You you steer the wheel, you push on the gas, you push on the brake now there's a whole field of automatic control so in in our in control in, in the engineering world if you talk about control you're usually
0: referring to automatic control um that almost sounds like a, like an oxymoron automatic control <laughs> <laughs> yeah so
2: so yeah so control it's it's basically if you want the simplest example they always give is a thermostat so if your apartment's cold the heaters kick in if it's too hot you know the heaters stop and the air conditioning turns on, and it's sort of balancing that. It's automatically adjusting those systems to keep the temperature where you want it. So yeah. you can apply that concept to a self-driving car, to an aircraft, etc. So um, my lab specifically focuses on you know things that fly, and then how they move, and then how you could get them to move automatically with no human intervention
0: does this require like artificially intelligent uh, deep learning neural networks, such as we might have discussed with Jacob Buckman on episode seven?
2: So, I mean, it, you can. So I would say control theory can fall under, it could fall under artificial intelligent, intelligence. Some people would, would argue that. Um, and then how you, the kind of the, the method in which how you control something you can use deep learning and neural networks. You can also use control theory, which is more based on physics and not based on data.
0: Physics, not data. So
2: so essentially the way I, my aircraft can fly itself is I have what's called a control law. So if it needs to fly, you know, level flight and it starts, you know, banking left, there's a control surface, which essentially applies a torque. It, it moves the
0: – it rotates the aircraft. That's perfect. That yes, amazing. Good good fix there. We're <laughs> not going to get into torque. We already have F equals MA. There's probably three listeners right now only. Yeah, so this.
2: say the aircraft is like twisted left and it needs to – it wants to automatically twist right. You have just some – the very simple control law that would say – for every amount you're you're sort of too far to, too far twisted left you want to apply that same twist back Perfect. so that's like control theory now the the way that the machine learning world would do it is they would have this like simulation they fly it a million times
0: and they, there's a reward for how it flies, and then it right. uses that data, you know. And you're not doing that. So you're not, you're not applying artificial intelligence or any kind of, like, deep learning neural networks, all that fancy stuff. That's not part of what you're doing. You're more on the physics side. Exactly, yes. Okay. Right. So you're not feeding it data through these simulations. Um, you're actually just modeling this, the, the equilibrium, the balance that it needs to strike at every given moment in time. Yes,
2: essentially. I mean, it's not, it's usually one. So my control law for this, you know, aircraft, it works, you know, throughout the whole flight. It's not like there's many of them. There's
0: one law. Essentially. Yeah. Seatbelts on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so what's the law then? Is it what you just said before, which is that if you're twisting too much to one side, then you go the other way to me, that seems way too simplistic to be the only law to fly yeah. well, I mean an agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicle if I'm saying it correctly so i
2: mean it's it's more complicated than that because there's more dimensions right so there's Oh, how many well there there's you could either argue six or twelve, so you have essentially is this like string theory you know, or something Are you- <laughs> well because you, you have you there's really twelve dimensions you're trying to control there's position, which is three, right? Because if you think about like a, a coordinate system
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then there's orientation. So any, there's basically three parameters that could describe how an object is oriented. X, Y, Z, you could think of, right? Well, so X, Y, Z would be like position. Position, sorry. And then orientation. But like, just take yep. your phone, right? And you want to put it in some arbitrary, you know, arbitrary my orientation. phone right now so you yeah. can rotate it right in a, a bunch of
0: ways i can rotate it along the three different axes x yeah. y and so Z. that's
2: kind of the you could think about it like that that's why there's three variables associated with um orientation and then so that's six could, so far so that's six and then you could think about the the velocities associated with those
0: so, so each one of those has a velocity exactly yeah wait a second a position can have a velocity doesn't well, like that the okay.
2: derivative of yeah
0: without getting too technical but yeah calculus calculus <laughs> incoming everybody everybody just 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 skip the next eight seconds if you're <laughs> calculus but you shouldn't be okay so you take the derivative which is some mathematical operation we're not going to get into and that produces velocity
2: for oh yes for all six of those previous things we so 12 okay so you are sort of trying so as i said with a thermostat where you're trying to you know basically control one temperature there's actually 12 things you're trying to control
0: what in a thermostat no 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 with, oh. the, with the aircraft <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying there's like 12 different dimensions in a thermostat i'm like that's crazy because oh wait, wait. so actually let's give the listeners five seconds to think about how many dimensions are in a thermostat and then you will tell us the answer so it's just a moment of silence how many dimensions in a thermostat One. Oh, that was in five seconds <laughs> oh <no. laughs> my bad but wait a second. How could it be one? Because to me, this seems like everything has to be at least a multiple of two because you just said you can de- you can take the derivative. True. So yeah, it, it's it's kind of like, it's not of Like, how is it one? It's oh, dimensional. it's one-dimensional because you're just thinking about like like the linear scale of temperature. So you're either increasing or decreasing temperature and that's just one dimension. Is that what you're Well, it's, it's not, you shouldn't think about it as like
2: a hard, so there's, without getting too technical, there are some, something called a state is what you're trying to control. Okay. So... A person, you know, in a room, they care about what the temperature is.
0: They don't really care about
2: the rate of change of the
0: temperature. Ah, uh, so I see now. You're saying rate of change in reference to calculus. Exactly, because calculus is the mathematics of rates of change. Okay, perfect. Again, we're not. This is not abstract. The podcast about calculus and about losing as many listeners as you can in a short period of time. it's, it's specifically about very many different things one of which is uh, agile fixed-wing unmanned aerial vehicles so states
2: so so yeah so I mean a state so for for a thermostat you you really care about the temperature so you would that's why there's really one state with these flying vehicles you kind of do care about the the rate of change of those others so that's why there's 12 so gotcha. back to the earlier it's not as simple as what I put it as just that but it's not that far off from that.
0: So there are 12 dimensions that you were accounting for in your control model, your control, hold on, you called it a control algorithm. Algorithm, sure. Um, there was a different word that you used for it, control. Control uh, law. law. yes, I like that, control law. This takes into account the 12 dimensions, six of which are just derived from this, the the original six of three orientation and three position. Yeah, this and then, been, okay.
2: And then the way you, you actually follow the, whatever your desired, you know, value for those, those states are, you can control them with what's called an actuator. So on an aircraft, Uh-oh. what's an actuator? It's, it's pretty simple. It's basically what, what makes it move. So you have okay. one actuator is that propeller we were talking about earlier. Oh, so okay. It, it provide it gives you force. Now you actually have three other actuators which are little flaps, which are called control surfaces. And these are, they are on conventional aircraft as well. And when they deflect, you know, the airflow over the plane, you know, is modified based on how you deflect them, which then causes the plane to rotate.
0: So there are two, two of those flaps that, that control the airflow, one on each wing, and then one on that back tail, right?
2: Uh, yeah, and there's, a, there's kind of, on the tail, there's kind of two. Two, okay. Uh, there's one it's called like an elevator, which, which you know makes you elevate it, and then yeah. one a rudder, which is similar to a, a boat. A boat, yeah.
0: People are yeah, familiar. So there's two on the tail.
2: Well, of- so there's two on the tail, and then there's two on the wing, but the two on the wing are considered one because the they're thing. always doing in
0: sync with each other. Hmm. So cool. Okay, so lots of different actuators, and the actuators really is just a fancy word for the thing that, that affects change related to airflow. In the case of an airplane. Exactly, yeah. Okay. I hope my my constant rewording doesn't bother you. This is the no, best no, way that I myself <laughs> have figured out how to, how to create this, this coherent image in my mind is just to dial it down as much as possible. Doing, doing great so far. So you said that you have a background in, or at least your thesis is related to robotics and also a focus on aerospace applications. So I guess something that the listeners might be curious about, including myself, is what are the applications of this field, but specifically what are the applications of your specific control law?
2: So one of the main things people are, are interested in would be medical supply delivery. So say, you know, you're um, bit, you're in some r- rural area and you're bit by a snake and you need some some thing that can save your life, but you need it very quickly. So if you had a hub with various medical supplies with one of these drones there, you could then load it in and say like, say that hub was you know in a limited space, you could take off vertically. You don't need a full runway to, to take off. But then once you're high enough, you could transition into this conventional flight regime and then fly towards, whoever the person is, and then, you know, drop the the urgent uh, medical supplies.
0: Okay, yeah, that seems, that seems pretty good. If there are any listeners right now who are currently being bitten by snakes in rural areas, don't worry, help is on its way. Give us a few more years. I think Aton's almost done his PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll be okay, just just suck the venom out if it's in in, in a in a mouth accessible location on your body. Okay, anyhow, so Great. That is definitely a great example. I'm curious to ask for one more example. Yeah. So another one would be very specific surveillance. Okay.
2: So say, uh, there was some, some crime scene, right? You needed eyes in the air as opposed to having a helicopter, which one consumes a lot of energy. You're putting risk to the pilot, especially if there's maybe someone with weapons or whatever that could shoot down the helicopter. Mm -hmm. If you had some smaller platform running on battery electric batteries with no pilot it's it's better for the environment it's also safer because there's no human actually on there and if all you really need is like video footage you could put a camera on one of these drones and uh and survey
0: the area so just taking out the human component then so we already have unmanned fixed wing aerial vehicles then you have the additional word agile. I'm really continuously referring back to this intro. So, you know, everything I'm talking about is, has already been mentioned at least once. I I guess I'm asking the question, do we already have autonomous fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles without this agile kind of modifier on it? You're, you're right on that. That's perfect. So the, the traditional fixed wing, you know, that was
2: probably solved 30 years ago. It's the agile, which I'm, also, kind of referring to this vertical takeoff, mm-hmm. um, and then you know the transition is quite agile. Um, there, some of the the other thing that's we the other reason why we use the word agile is some of the turns that we make are much more aggressive than something you could feel in a passenger aircraft. Much like sharper turns. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a a whole like hobbyist group which essentially flies these these planes manually and they they go to competitions and they twirl these planes around they do rolls
0: and backflips I've, like I've, I've heard and, and, and seen that before it looks insane it's like yeah, obstacle so, courses for drones so that was
2: actually one of the motivators of my project was like all these people are doing it manually let's just see
0: if we can automate this is your goal to to actually put one of your automated vehicles into a competition like this and like see if you can compete at that level? So you know the the techno I've already the
2: technology is developed. Like I, I could do I can do similar things to uh, what these human pilots can do. I could okay. do them automatically with my
0: platform, but
2: it's just I didn't find it worth
0: it. He effort. says he says with utmost humility. <laughs> I can do that already, but I'm not even gonna try and compete there because I got better things to do. Like how people well, get I mean, snake you know, bites. what's the what's the
2: value? Like, oh these humans can do it and now my machine can do it better. Like is that
0: bragging rights. Is there any <laughs> Yeah. Sure. Okay. I think I, I think I, I recall seeing some kind of like virtual reality uh thing where people would kind of put on the like like the VR masks and they would essentially see what the airplane sees.
2: Yeah, that's that would probably
0: make you throw up if you uh, <laughs> <laughs> very possibly okay so okay so just to just kind of take stock again of, of where we're at here just a quick check-in we already have autonomous fixed-wing unmanned aerial vehicles that already exists do we have autonomous agile unmanned aerial vehicles? so everything except for the fixed wing no we don't so that's that oh, we what don't we're... okay that's where like, my
2: research comes in, in, in two places. One is the the control, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. is if you want these things to maneuver on their own, you need to develop these control laws that will stabilize them. In these different flight regimes, it's complicated to do that. That's why they're it's requiring like a whole PhD. Mm-hmm. And so that was that's about half my my thesis. Now the the second half is motion planning which i which was mentioned in the intro so control is like i want to fly this path why can't you can you automatically follow this path motion planning is now i have a camera on this vehicle and it sees a tree that it didn't know about earlier so motion
0: planning says let's change the path to avoid this tree okay so it takes into account variables that you hadn't You know, been able to take into account.
2: Yeah, because you you can't plan, you know, what if a tree is not in in Google Maps or what if a bird flies by like you can't Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily know your environment ahead of time. So you need a system that can sort of generate desired motion to avoid
0: potential obstacles that arise. Okay. Have you been working on the control for the first half and now you're heading more towards the motion planning or was it kind of both happening at the same time.
2: No, it was the it was exactly what you said. So okay. the, the first idea was, you know, we work on this control. We try out all these fancy aggressive maneuvers and they seem to work quite well. So once they were working quite well, we said, well, Let's do something else. So that's why we went on to this. Uh,
0: was that in the initial plan for your, for your, for your thesis or for your dissertation? Your thesis? Well,
2: the initial plan was just the control. Like that would have been my master's had I just finished the master. And then you, there was still room to improve. Like nothing's perfect. But I kind of decided I'd rather grasp or gain knowledge in another area of robotics as opposed to get deeper into the one I already was in.
0: I can appreciate that for sure. And that will, I think, probably make for a more interesting end product as well.
2: Oh, for sure, yeah. Because you
0: don't need to, as like an individual researcher, dive that deep at this point, in my opinion. You'll probably be at least more hireable, more desirable, more admirable, more f- less fireable um, <laughs> with with the motion planning. So it's Exactly, yeah. So let's dive into the motion planning then. So this is basically taking into account things in our environment that we can't account for in a sense, which kind of seems a bit weird, but um, how, does, how does like your, your motion planning law differ from your control law then? Are there fundamental differences there?
2: Yeah, yeah, they're, they're quite different. So I have this, this camera, it's, it's actually two cameras, like, like your eyes, you can perceive depth if you
0: have two eyes. So
2: similar with, with cameras.
0: Not to discriminate against listeners who only have one eye, if you can't see depth, that's okay. We still love you. (laughs) So
2: with, you know, with two cameras, you can, you get some sense of depth and then you could project, say I wanted to fly this route. Would that route have a collision with something? It doesn't really matter what actually. And you can also measure like, where do you want to go? So the way the algorithm works is, you know, five times every second, it's making this calculation. It, it takes a bunch of potential routes it could travel. And it weighs, is it going towards where I want to go? And is it far from obstacles? And then the one that's kind of the best of both like, is chosen. And that's what's given to the controller to then track. It's an
0: optimization problem, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, now I just want to call you out because you said it doesn't really matter what the obstacle is. However, what a bird what it is! What it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I would argue that a bird is a different obstacle than a tree because the bird's position is going to be changing in every, like, five times a second, where yeah. the tree is not.
2: That's a very oh. good point. So, I mean, there's only so much you can do in a PhD, but that would be one way <laughs> to to enhance the algorithm. So you're post right. Doc, but- post doc. Post doc. <laughs> Okay. So there is a difference. I just want to yeah, No, there's question. definitely and it, and say you wanted to avoid other aircraft, right? That would, you would a hundred percent have to take that into account.
0: That of course makes me think just of like the whole auto, like a uh, self-driving car thing is you're working with not just birds and trees, but also every other car has its own kind of brain quote unquote, and mm-hmm. it's making its own decisions. So kind of Yeah, I guess making sure in
2: a self-driving car, they will actually detect that's someone on a bicycle. That's someone walking. Okay. That's just a mailbox, right? So then if you get a little closer to the mailbox, that's fine, right? It's not
0: it isn't gonna run out and and then you know, you're gonna it'll take you to court. No. It's mailbox. (laughs) So in terms of motion planning, then the level that you're at right now, you are purely just identifying obstacles. And then five times a second, you're basically creating a, a, an, an optimal path, according to some, I guess, probabilities of all of the things that are happening around you.
2: It's yeah, very statistical. Much. And yeah, so that you, you summed it up pretty
0: well. I guess I'd like to maybe just touch on quickly for fun that, that last part, just to kind of pause for a moment, let, let the things we've spoken about just sink in. You said that you were just inducted into the McGill intramural sports hall of fame. One thing that we, that we do like to talk about on this podcast is work-life balance. So it sounds like you've really got your hands full and there's a lot of very, very dense material that you must be sifting through in order to actually, you know, plan and, and, and write up and create these algorithms, et cetera. How did you make time for sports? And also to the level of actually getting into the McGill intramural sports hall of fame, that's, that's pretty impressive by my standards.
2: Well, I mean, it's mainly just, that's what I love doing. So it's easy, I think, to make time for something when it's your main source of entertainment. I I probably don't spend too much time on, you know, like Instagram and watching Netflix. I, I just, I, I'm not great at any sport, but I just love most of them. So I, you know, you get a gr- good group of friends that are kind of have the similar mentality we just signed up for all the leagues you know we took our soccer team we signed us up in the basketball league and that's that's pretty funny actually uh,
0: these were these are people who who you would just play various sports with outside of school and then you- yeah like
2: i think it just kind of evolved like you know you know one friend and then they know someone and all of a sudden we have it's i kind of consider it one of my groups of friends is like the the sports you know i've got one friend in particular he got inducted into the Hall of Fame with me.
0: And we mainly nice.
2: just play sports together. It's like we're on like five teams together every semester.
0: Okay. So you guys and must have a really good synergy then. Like you're kind of a dynamic duo, power duo. Exactly. Okay. And I before we were just chatting a little bit and you said that your your like favorite sport was, was soccer. Is that for any particular reason? Is it the fact that you, you need to take into account control and motion planning of, of the ball and the other players? Is it, I'm trying yeah, to I draw know. some relationship here between aerospace mechatronics and uh, football. I think it's just – that's what I grew up. That's what I'm best at. So uh,
2: okay, I think you just – you like – but, you know, what? I think I have more fun playing other sports. I, I'd say I'm best at soccer. But when you get at a certain level, I think you don't improve every time you play. Whereas if you're bad at something, the more you play – the you know, you you improve much faster. It ends up being more fun.
0: I see. So what what you're saying indirectly is that you value the learning experience. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm still in school, you know? See, this is this this is what my goal was, is to figure out how exactly getting to the McGill Intramural Sports Hall of Fame relates to doing a PhD in aerospace mechatronics. <laughs> so there is a connection, which I'm very happy about. It's just it's the desire to learn and the fact that you are clearly adaptable. So that's great. Love it. What do your parents do, by the way?
2: My mom is a doctor and my dad is a software engineer. So. Okay, so, so tiny shoes to fill. Minuscule, <laughs> minuscule shoes. Do you have siblings? I do, but my, my old, funny enough, my, my dad started a PhD, dropped out. My brother started a PhD and dropped out. I'm, I think I'm going to finish. I'm trying to submit my thesis in the next couple months.
0: So Oh, you're like really coming to the end then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Okay, I'm um, glad that I'm catching you then at that point, so we can really have as fruitful of a discussion as possible. That's great.
2: But yeah, so I might be the first in the family. We'll hope. That would be great. First
0: for the PhD, but not the first to be a doctor. You know, exactly. so yeah. unfortunately, you didn't get that that title, those bragging rights. That's cool. I think it's interesting. Um, I, I'm I'm quite interested in family dynamics myself, not just not just aerospace dynamics, but <laughs> the social aspects and uh, you know how how the home environment, family environment might actually shape your desires. Did you know that you wanted to, like, how long have you known that you wanted to pursue a PhD? Oh, no, I I think in any other, if I played out my life, uh, like 10 times,
2: mm-hmm. this is the only one where I end up doing a PhD, like, okay, I never particularly wanted to, I I, I honestly, it was just like, I think I wanted to do the master's degree, I felt like, there was a lot more to learn to enter like the robotics world that I didn't have after undergrad. And I I, liked my supervisor. I said, you know, I'll stay. Then for the PhD, it was more like, you know, if I got a job, how would I keep playing sports? Like I can't play intramurals anymore. I had to, uh, you know, needed a reason to stick around. And, uh, and I said, why not? You know, it's it's I have a great work life balance. Like I I don't work that much. I,
0: you know, it's, you get- Doctors hate this one PhD student, you know, a picture <laughs> of, of the banana, fruits you shouldn't eat. Etienne Volka is the worst. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that though. It, it, it really does bring me joy to know that there are graduate students who enjoy, really love what they do. They have a good work-life balance and they make it work. I think for the listeners though, what would be most beneficial here is for you to kind of maybe give us a sense of like, what your, what your approach to life is like, tell us who Eitan Volk is and how he manages to do all this with a smile on his face, a great attitude and a great balance. I, I think it's something a lot of people struggle with. What can we learn I mean, from you? I honestly,
2: it's pretty simple. I think I just do what I like doing. Okay. So, I mean, you can't think super short-sighted, but I don't think that longs you know, that far in advance either. If, if I like doing something and keep doing it, you know, like, that have you that always was
0: been someone though who who liked doing a lot of things. Like, the, the, like sorry? That, have you always been someone who's who's liked doing a lot of things? I, I don't think I do that. I mean, honestly, the two things I do are sports,
2: school, and you know, drink with friends. Like, I, I don't okay. I don't think I'm doing that much.
0: Like, okay, uh, except to do all the sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess that's and, like many things in one category. So you yeah,
2: you know, and and I think that's also who I surround myself with is like people with similar interests. Like we go yesterday I was at the park all day, you know, bring in spike ball and can jam and football and so you know, and it's everyone is kind of has similar mindset.
0: Yeah, which is apparently who cares about COVID nineteen?
2: <laughs> no, no, we kept our distance. We
0: okay. on. No one was licking the spike ball. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Um All right. So look no it's it's uh it's something to think about, I think just
2: and, and actually, one other point okay. I make
0: is, yeah. I think a
2: lot of grad students who feel like they don't have a balance, like a work-life balance, a lot of it I think falls on the supervisor who puts a lot of pressure. Luckily, my supervisor I think does he doesn't put any pressure on me. It's it's all self motivated, which I think is
0: a good way to go about it. Mm-hmm. If it's not self motivated, though, like to me that kind of seems like one of the foundations. a successful graduate student is actually being self-motivated to the point where you don't even need the supervisor to be kind of on your butt
2: yeah exactly so but and you know you you need one that's reasonable that that doesn't expect you know absurd amounts of work in in no Mm -hmm. you know in a short amount of time so
0: So given that you just kind of basically said that you're quite an independent you know self-driven phd student how often do you communicate with your supervisor like like do you go months or is this or is, is, is there just kind of a consistent constant regular
2: um that's a good question well i i started out with probably about at once a week speaking with him and, and i definitely needed more guidance in the beginning mm-hmm. luckily as i kind of grew more independent he he became the like chairman of the department so he oh wow this time and you know with all the mcgill bureaucracy with covid and stuff I, and at this point i probably speak to him once every month, once every three weeks, kind of. Okay, thing.
0: fair enough. Yeah. I think it's also interesting, just you know, like every, every supervisor's a different story, different experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, So as you said, that can definitely shape a graduate research experience as well. So we're coming to the end here. You said that you've been hired as an unmanned aerial systems consultant for various companies in the US and Canada. What are some of the companies you've worked for and what have you done for these companies as a consultant? So it's obviously insulting.
2: Yeah. So I mean, I I can't I can't talk too much because you do sign uh NDAs and stuff. Oh, okay. But um, basically, there are a lot of companies with very similar missions and platforms to my to what I'm doing for my PhD. So two of them, it was it was really very similar work to what I've already done. They're like, oh, we need this done, and you know, I can charge them way more than what i get as my stipend so it's uh <laughs> it's worthwhile right. yeah yeah but very very similar the same control and, and motion planning for these vehicles um there there's are a lot of drone companies out there trying to make it and trying to acquire talent and whatnot so it's it's actually been i've never tried i never tried to get any of these gigs but they sort of just when you're in the field and there seems to be a bit of actually a shortage of
0: workers in this area so Mm -hmm. it kind of just fall but Uh, is it an emerging field like it seems like it this is kind of cutting edge stuff but where's where's the demand for it
2: so uh that's a good well first of all investors are are willing to to put money into it Mm -hmm. um i think the whole just like automation ai you know there's just a lot of attention so there are like a lot of startup companies that have they have money to spend, so... Uh, and a
0: has money to get.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like, I think it's, it's surveillance. There, there are military contracts for these drones. I, I don't know if I'll stay in the, in the field. Like, I, I might switch over to self-driving cars. There's even, that's even a bigger industry and yeah. have even a bigger impact.
0: I went to a conference a couple of years ago, and I I, I went to some talk about... Some product it was called an EV toll, an electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. Have you heard of these things? That's uh that's another word for what I what I'm working on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I recognize the similarity. Uh, these were people, this is maybe like two, two or three years ago, and they were talking about how in you know by 2030, let's say they want to have these these basically, you know, EV tolls, these, these, you know, flying, these agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles yeah. to transport people like across the city or, you know, like very mm-hmm. quickly, basically. And so that seemed like even then, like two, three years ago, it was even more in its infancy. And it was just like purely, you know, kind of like a pipe dream.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think now those companies, I, I I've seen a few, I don't know if it's, if it's the same, but they're, they're really making progress. Like you can see videos of real prototypes that are are flying and 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 it's a lot of work to go from you know just there's a lot more than just the manufacturing right there's a lot of dynamics modeling like we talked about and and all these things that need to be put into place safety wise that you have right especially if you have people in them
0: Um, not really dealing with like the ethics of anything right because everything actually i mean how was how was the ethics process for your for your phd then not that it's the most interesting thing to talk about on a podcast, but like, what are the ethical implications of what you're doing? There's no people, but still flying things that you're trying to control. Like, if there's a mistake, could your could your you know drone fly and then chop someone's heads off by accident? You know?
2: Yeah, I mean, my, luckily mine are small enough that I don't think you could ever you could hurt someone. You couldn't. I don't think you could kill anyone with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that's why when what we if do,
0: I wanted to kill somebody? <laughs>
2: you you gotta need a bigger one okay perfect perfect uh no but, bad intention here <laughs> you know you do have to be very careful right like we we go to very big fields if anything looks fishy you know we we re- we land the aircraft like we're very careful because if it was to fly away and you know hit someone it,
0: it could hurt them so okay cool awesome amazing I'm, I'm glad that we just kind of touched on the, on the industry aspect. Actually, um, so this is episode 11, and in episode 10, I had Andrea Cartile on, and she's also in the aerospace industry, and she had a lot of experience in industry as well. So I think it's cool now that we've had two, two guests in a row that have kind of dabbled in the, in the same region, but still very, very different things. Final question. So my final question is a question I've asked to all my guests. So if you've been a day one listener, then you know what this question is already. And that is, how would you describe yourself as an academic using one to three words, and as a student, uh, sorry, and as a person outside of academia, one to three words, and would those descriptors be the same or different?
2: One word as an academic and one word outside of academic.
0: Exactly. So, like academic life, like again, because you said you have great work-life balance. So clearly, you're, you know, or not clear, but maybe you you are similar in both domains. Maybe different. How would you describe yourself in each domain? One to three words each.
2: Um, I guess this doesn't sell myself very well. I'd say I'm fairly <laughs> laid back in in both and and I think in fairly in, laid back. Uh, three words. Cool. Cool. In in life, I think that helps, but I think in academics it it doesn't in some uh, some
0: situations. But uh, but it works well with your supervisor because they're a little more hands off, so yeah, the fairly laid back stuff works as long as you get the work done. Fairly laid back. Okay. Uh, are you are you competitive when you play sports?
2: Yeah, that's actually I'm extremely competitive when I play sports, and I'm not competitive at all with with the research. So.
0: I, Is that because there aren't many people doing what you do? So like, there's no one to compete with.
2: Um, I mean, that's maybe that's part of it. I, yeah. I, I just don't see the need, like in our lab, that's just the environment. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna help my lab mate and he's going to help me. I'm not going to like be like, Oh, I got to beat him out and, and publish this. It's, it's much more like we work together and, and collaborate and it's not, competing and even with other universities like it's not i don't feel like we're ru- i know in other fields people are you know rushing to publish in front of their peers from other places but you know we've had some some collaborations with a, a university in a lab in the university of sherbrooke and a lab at harvard and in both situations like we're just giving each other tips like little things you know that kind of go a long way Nothing. We were never working too close to them, but it's also it's not like I need to get this out before they do. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't okay.
0: have that uh, feel. That's nice to hear that there isn't like this like cutthroat nature just you know all across your field. Uh, I, th- I think that play is more conducive to an enjoyable experience, not not feeling like there is this this pressure, right? And again, that that facilitates your fairly laid back nature. <laughs> exactly. So it's a match made in heaven. Awesome. Well, it's 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 really been a pleasure uh, chatting with you. So, just I guess for some for some background, um, Aton and myself met on a trip five years ago or something like that. You give me a face like you didn't, like you have no idea who I am. Oh no, of course. <laughs> You're like, what? Who is this guy? He's, <laughs> he's making this all up. And so it was it, it was very nice to reconnect. I'm glad that I now know a lot more about control and motion planning of robotic systems with a focus on aerospace applications and the autonomy of agile fixed-wing unmanned aerial vehicles. And I hope the listeners also do feel the same way. So we're going to leave it there. Thanks again, Eitan, for coming on the podcast. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you. And you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or, if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly, on Sundays, and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts, so... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.